Here again you place yourself on the enemy's ground without warrant. You rush into the field before you have orders from the captain of salvation, and you have nothing to expect but that your presumption will be punished by an ignominious defeat. I repeat then, watch against all needless occasions of temptation. While you are careful not to decline any conflict to which you are called in the course of duty, be equally careful not to volunteer your service in this way where there is no occasion. Watch against the power of temptation. I have already said that in the discharge of your duty you will often necessarily be placed in circumstances in which you may be tempted. Here then your whole vigilance is to be put in requisition that you do not fall. And you have every encouragement to this course from the fact that you are engaged in the cause and at the bidding of your master. Count it all joy, says the Apostle James, when you fall into divers temptations, i.e., if God in his providence bring his children into temptation, it may be an occasion of joy to them, as furnishing additional evidence of his paternal kindness in bringing them through it and of their renovation. As temptation derives its power chiefly from a wrong state of the heart, it is especially necessary when you are placed in these circumstances that you should keep your heart with all diligence. You are to cultivate indeed at all times that lively sense of divine things, that spiritual and heavenly frame of feeling, which will be most likely to shield you from this evil. But you are to take special care to bring yourself under the influence of religious feelings, as you are about to approach a scene of temptation, you are to go with your whole soul bathed in the holy influences of the gospel, with that spirit which prompted the blessed Redeemer in similar circumstances to say, Get thee behind me, Satan. And if you discover the least drawing of your affections towards a forbidden object, you are to regard it as a signal for alarm. And when you have once begun to delay with the temptation, to institute the inquiry about yourself whether you may yield to it or not, or to cast about you for palliating circumstances, rely on it you have already begun to sink under its power. Watch. Watch, my young friends, against the beginning of this evil. Watch into prayer. Watch for the opportunities of prayer. It is an important part of a Christian economy to have stated seasons for private devotion, for experience proves that where this duty is made a manner of convenience merrily, and is left to occupy only the remnants of time, which may be occasionally gathered up from the occupations of the world, there is a chilling influence exerted, under which all the graces of the Christian languish. Be careful, therefore, that you have stated seasons for visiting your closet, and let your worldly concerns all be arranged so far as possible with reference to these seasons. When you foresee providential circumstances which will prevent you from observing the usual hour, anticipate your devotion, and when you are prevented by some unexpected event, instead of passing over the duty for that time, avail yourselves of the first opportunity to perform it. I know indeed that the form of this duty may be observed without the Spirit, but if this form be habitually neglected, it is scarcely too much to say that the Spirit is wanting, of course. I am aware that there are many situations in which the discharge of this duty is attended with peculiar difficulties, and there is much reason to fear that many young professors, after struggling with these difficulties for a while, come at length to regard them as constituting an apology for the neglect of the duty altogether. Hence I have no doubt it is that many a youth who once gave fair promise of being a devoted Christian 
has sunk into a state of spiritual apathy so deep as scarcely to be distinguished from the lethargy of impenitence. As you would avoid this tremendous evil, my young friends, guard against that neglect of secret devotion which will be sure to lead to it. If your circumstances subject you to peculiar embarrassment in reference to this duty, endeavor to counteract their unfavorable influence by a double degree of watchfulness and diligence. There is hardly any condition in which you will be likely to be placed, but by proper exertion you may secure at least some moments every day for retirement. And where this is impracticable, you may not to lift up your heart to God in silent ejaculations. If in His providence He places you in a condition in which you can commune with Him in no other manner, such an offering no doubt will be accepted. But you are also to watch for the spirit of prayer. Without the spirit of devotion, the form is mere hypocrisy. Though, as has been already intimated, we are not to look for the spirit, where the form is habitually neglected. It should be your object to watch for the spirit constantly, not merely when you go into your closet, but amidst your ordinary cares and occupations, in the workshop, or on the farm, or in the counting room, even in those circumstances which would seem least favorable to your devotional feeling, you may still occasionally retire within yourself and do something to fan the sacred flame. You should watch for the Spirit in the events of providence, which either occur in your experience or fall under your observation, whether they are adapted to deepen humility, to quicken faith, to nourish gratitude, or to bring into exercise any other of the elements of devotion. Whenever you discover the Holy Spirit's operation in the silent movements of your soul towards heaven, oh, cherish this divine influence with peculiar care. Be not satisfied till the spirit of devotion is plentifully shed abroad in your heart, and your soul is filled with all the fullness of God. Moreover, you are to watch for answers to prayer. If you should ask some signal favor of an earthly superior, and it should not be granted, you would naturally be led to inquire whether there were not something in the manner of your asking which prevented the bestowment of it. In like manner, if you do not receive the blessings which you ask of God, it may well lead you to review your prayers, especially the spirit with which they have been offered, and see whether your want of sincerity or faith or perseverance does not constitute the grand obstacle to your being answered. On the other hand, if your prayers actually are answered, you should notice it as a ground of thanksgiving and encouragement. If you have reason to believe that, in answer to your petition, some sore temptation would threaten you has been averted, or that you have received in an increased measure of strength to encounter some temptations into which you have been brought. While you give God the glory, you will feel new resolution for your future conflicts and new encouragement to cast yourself upon divine aid. Number two. But the other duty which the text enjoins as a means of defense against temptation is prayer. Concerning this, let me say that you are not to pray that God will not permit you to fall into temptation above what you are able to bear. In all thy ways acknowledge God, and he will direct thy paths. He knows perfectly what temptations with a given degree of strength you will be able to overcome. And he is abundantly able so to arrange a vincinous providence that the temptations to which you are exposed shall not exceed your ability of resistance. Let it be your prayer, then, that he will prevent you from being placed in circumstances which will involve temptations too powerful for you, 
and if you should heedlessly seek such a situation, that he will oppose insurmountable obstacles to your arriving at it. But on the other hand, you are to pray that if in the providence of God you fall into great temptation, you may be prevented by an increased degree of grace from falling before it. There are some cases in which a temptation cannot be anticipated, as it results from circumstances into which you are brought contrary to your expectations. But in such cases, it is your duty to send up a silent petition to God, that He will grant you grace equal to the exigency. Other cases there are in which a temptation approaches gradually, and you have time to discipline your heart and offer your prayers in view of it. But as you are never secure in this respect, you are always to pray for the sustaining and overcoming influences of divine grace, to pray that whatever may be the character of the temptation which you are called to meet, you may have strength from on high proportion to it. With such preparation as this for your spiritual conflict, you will be in little danger of being vanquished. And finally, you are to pray that you may be watchful. A spirit of watchfulness, as you have seen, is absolutely essential to preserve you from falling into sin, and is therefore to be regarded as a most important blessing. But like every other blessing, it must come from God and must be sought by prayer. Let the petition, then, often go up from your heart, that you may be enabled to carry a watchful spirit with you into all your intercourse with your fellow Christians and with the world, that you may watch against the occasions of temptation and against its power, that you may watch for opportunities of prayer, for the spirit of prayer, for answers to prayer, and if you follow these directions, you will find that the two duties, or rather the two parts of the same duty, which I have been urging, will exert a mutually favorable influence upon each other. That while watchfulness will promote the spirit of prayer, prayer in its turn will increase the spirit of watchfulness, and that together they will constitute an adequate defense against temptation. On a review of our subject, we remark first that the Christian life is a life of great activity. Is not the life of the soldier stationed in an enemy's country exposed to innumerable stratagems and often called out to battle an active life? What say you then of the life of the Christian who has to wrestle not against flesh and blood only, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places? And if there be occasion for every Christian to be constantly active, in order to prosecute with success the warfare to which he is called, is not this emphatically true of the young Christian, who is assailed by a thousand temptations, and yet is comparatively unfurnished for the conflict? Better a thousandfold think to remain idle on the field of battle, or when a band of murderers are plotting for your destruction, than to think to encounter the enemies which the young Christian has to meet without severe effort. But though the Christian life is a life of activity, that activity is itself a source of enjoyment. It is not idleness, but exertion, persevering, successful exertion, which makes men happy. It is the privilege of the Christian, who has triumphed in the conflict with his spiritual enemies, to enjoy a peaceful, grateful, confiding state of mind, in view of that grace which gives him the present victory, and of that glory which will crown his final triumph. Even heaven itself, the abode of perfect happiness, though not a scene of warfare, is a place of activity for its inhabitants, 
Rest not day nor night, but give glory and honor and thanks to him that sitteth on the throne, who liveth for ever and ever. I ask you then, my young friend, in view of the consideration now suggested, to examine anew your claim to the Christian character. Is your religion a religion of indolent ease or of vigorous effort? Are you satisfied to float down with the current of temptation, or do you exert yourself to the utmost to resist it? Do you lead a life of watchfulness and prayer, or are you contented to leave open the doors of your heart to every temptation? Be not deceived. If the path in which you are walking is smooth and easy, if you find in it little of conflict and self-denial, you may imagine indeed that you have found an easy way to heaven, but take heed lest the event should prove that you have been walking in the broad road to hell. Again, Learn from the subject that the Christian's actual strength is in proportion to his sense of weakness. When I am weak, said the Apostle, then I am strong. And the same spiritual paradox occurs in the experience of every Christian. Observe the solution of it. When the Christian is looking round upon his spiritual enemies, looking inward upon himself, feels his inability to grapple with them, when he is brought most deeply to realize that, in his own strength, he can do nothing, then he is induced to cast himself on the boundless resources of God's grace. If left to his own unassisted efforts, he feels that he is as helpless as an infant, but girded with omnipotence, he can do all things. To a spirit of activity, then, my young friends, join a spirit of dependence. Be fearless of temptation, only when you repose in Jehovah your strength. Let every victory which you gain while it ministers to your humility by reminding you of your own weakness, carry your soul upward to Almighty God in devout thanksgiving for all His conquering grace. Finally, happy they are who are trained up in this world of conflict for a world of glory. There are those who enjoy far less happiness than the Christian, who, by living here, are prepared only for a world of despair. But the Christian... By the warfare which he maintains and the strength of Almighty Grace has become unqualified for the everlasting communion of angels. Does the thought ever rise in your heart, my young friends, in some moments of impatience, that these struggles with temptation are almost too severe to be endured? Beyond that dark valley which lies a little way onward in your path, and into which you will soon descend, there is a bright region of immortal glory. You cannot see it now, for the darkness that hangs around that valley obstructs your vision. But as sure as you are enlisted in Jehovah's service, you will soon be there. And thence you will look back upon the conflicts of the short period of your existence and weep, if tears can be in heaven, that you should ever have felt a sentiment of reluctance at enduring them. Travel on, then, young Christian. For though young, the hills of Canaan will soon greet your longing eyes. And is it so that you are so near your bright inheritance? Is it so that sweet fields beyond the swelling floods watered by the river of life and smiling with immortal verdure are so soon to receive your weary feet? Welcome then all the horrors of this howling desert. Welcome all the fiery serpents which hell itself can send out. Welcome the most rough and stormy passage over Jordan, if this brief hour of conflict is to be succeeded by an eternity of glory. Lecture 14 Christian Decision Daniel 3 verse 18 
Be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship thy golden image, which thou hast set up. There is not perhaps recorded in the sacred volume a more signal instance of human pride and impiety than we find in the narrative with which our text is connected. Nebuchadnezzar, the haughty and infatuated king of Babylon, having greatly enriched himself by his conquest of the, of the surrounding nations, and especially the Jews, erected a monstrous golden image to the god Belus in the plain of Dura. Having convened his princes, governors, captains, judges, and other officers under him to the dedication of this idol, he issued a decree that at a certain signal every man should prostrate himself before it in token of adoration, and that if anyone refused to obey the mandate, he should do it at the fearful expense of being cast into a fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three men who were originally of the princes of Judea, and were carried captive to Babylon in their youth, refused from conscientious considerations to submit to this horrible requisition, upon which they were immediately summoned into the king's presence to answer for their disobedience. On their appearing before him, they were again offered the alternative of rendering homage to the idol or of being cast into the furnace. But they hesitated not a moment with the noble firmness which could face the frown of a mighty monarch, and even the most appalling horrors of martyrdom they replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this manner. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship thy golden image which thou hast set up. In the conduct of these men on this occasion, we have a noble instance of a genuine Christian decision. I designed this discourse to avail myself of the declaration in the text to recommend the cultivation of this trait of character to young Christians. And in doing so, I will call your attention briefly to its nature and its advantages. Number one. In respect to the nature of Christian decision, I observe that it is something entirely different from mere native firmness of character. Everyone knows that the original constitutions of man, intellectual and moral as well as physical, are exceedingly diverse. One, for instance, is originally irritable, another so placid as scarcely to be moved by any provocation. One is constitutionally ingenuous, another inclined to concealment. One is timid and wavering, another firm and resolute. Now this latter equality, mere natural firmness, differs from Christian decision in this important particular, that it is not, of course, subject to the dictates of conscience or directed by a regard to duty. The resolution of the man of the world may prompt him to deeds of injustice, deeds of cruelty, as well as to acts of generosity and compassion. And where this trait happens to be associated with an overbearing and revengeful spirit, instead of being a blessing to its possessor or the world, it is sure to be a curse to both. Many a bad man has been a scourge to the community in which he has lived, and even to the world who, without this native heroism of character, would have been comparatively harmless. Christian decision may be refined in general as that quality which resolutely determines a man to his duty at all times without improper regard to consequences. What are some of the elements of which the spirit is composed? Number one, a clear conviction of duty. 
No man is prepared to act at all, much less with decision, so long as he is at loss where the paths of duty lies. And the certain consequence of being embarrassed on this point will be that his efforts at best will be feeble, inconstant, and inefficient. The very reflection that he is acting without a settled conviction of duty, and still more, the reflection that he may be acting contrary to the will of God, taking it for granted that he is a good man, will be fitted to wound his conscience and weaken his resolution. Let him then, who would possess genuine Christian decision, make it his first object to ascertain the path of duty. Let him do this by attentively considering the leadings of God's providence, by faithfully consulting an enlightened conscience, and above all, by earnestly looking for divine guidance and teaching. And having once gained a clear and impressive conviction of what duty is, he is prepared for resolute and decided action. In most cases in which we are called to act, the path of duty to an honest and well-directed mind is plain. For instance, when Nebuchadnezzar commanded the three men to worship his idol, there was no cause for a moment's hesitation, nor did they wish for a moment to enable them to decide that they would not do it. And far the greater part of the cases of duty upon which Christians at the present day have to decide are as clear as that which was presented to the consideration of these men. And where it is otherwise, where there are circumstances to embarrass us in our inquiries and in our decision, this only constitutes a demand for more earnest consideration and prayer. It may be safely said that there are few instances in which the Christian, after using all the means in his power to ascertain his duty, is still left in the dark respecting it. Number two, another of the elements of Christian decision, that in which it especially consists, is an unyielding purpose to act agreeably to our sincere and enlightened convictions. It is one thing to know what we ought to do, and quite a different thing to do it. And it is to little purpose that we gain the knowledge of our duty unless we reduce that knowledge to practice. The individuals whose example is exhibited in our text were not only settled in the conviction that they ought not, but in the purpose that they would not bow down before the idol. And the language in which they refused to do it shows that they were inflexible in their determination. And so it is with every truly decided Christian. You may threaten him with the loss of everything he holds dear on this side of heaven. You may kindle a fiery furnace and tell him that he shall have his portion in it. You may bring before him the horrors of the prisoner's dungeon or the martyr's stake, and you will not shake his constancy in the course of duty. There is holy resolution in his soul kindled up by the breezing of God's Spirit, which the terrors of death itself cannot appall. Number three. Another element of Christian decision is a firm confidence in God. This the three men strikingly exhibited in their refusal to yield to the king's impious command. What if they should be thrown into the fiery furnace, which was made ready to receive them? They had full confidence that their God would preserve them unhurt, even amidst those fearful perils. And if he did not, they knew what their duty was, and that in some way or other God would bless them in the discharge of it. And they doubted not that if their bodies should be consumed in such a cause, they would be abundantly compensated for the sacrifice by the glories of eternity. And what they felt and exhibited was by no means peculiar to themselves. Every truly decided Christian exemplifies the same spirit. If the duty to which he is called is difficult, he confines in God for grace to enable him to discharge it. 
If he is doubtful in respect to consequences, he trusts in God to give them such a direction as will be for his glory. If he has reason to believe that and obey in the divine will, he shall involve himself in distressing worldly calamities. Here again he confides in God to deliver him out of them in his own best time or to cause him to work out for him an exceeding and eternal weight of glory. No one accustomed to attempt the discharge of duty in his own strength ever possessed true Christian decision. A nobler principle of action, a constant reliance on the Lord our strength, is absolutely necessary to constitute the truly decided Christian. Number two, I proceed secondly to consider some of the advantages which Christian decision secures. Number one and first, a decided course is a most safe course. It was so in the case of the three men whose decision is exhibited in our text. There was indeed that case to the eye of worldly calculation, the most appalling danger hanging over the path of duty. Nothing appeared but that their lives were in fearful jeopardy, and that they were on the eve of suffering a most agonizing death. The king's anger was excited to fury, and he commanded that the impious order which he had given for their destruction should be executed without delay. Accordingly, they were thrown into the fiery furnace, which was made ready for them. And doubtless not the king only, but everyone who was present expected to see them instantly become victims to the flames. And what was the result? Why, that these three men were seen walking in the midst of the furnace unhurt, under the protection of one whose form is said to have been like the Son of God. And the king rose up in astonishment and immediately commanded them to come out of the furnace, acknowledging the power of Jehovah in their preservation. And as it was in that case, so it is substantially in all others, the decided course is a safe course. Not that Christians in ordinary cases can expect a miraculous interposition in their behalf when they are brought into circumstances of danger, but God does usually extend to them His special care and protection. If difficulties rise and seem to hedge up their path, they are usually brought out of them in some way which they had not anticipated. And even if their decision leads them to encounter death and the cause of duty, it is a safe course still. For it is most emphatically true in this case that he that looteth his life shall find it. It is perfectly safe to die in the cause of duty, but it is unspeakably hazardous to live at the expense of denying Christ. The three men would have been safe in the most important sense of the word if the flames had instantly consumed them. For that religion, on account of which they had died, would have been a certain passport to heaven. And so is every Christian safe who yields up his life in similar circumstances for the crown of martyrdom. Here will be exchanged for a crown of glory hereafter. Number two, a decided course is the most easy course. I do not intend here to imply that a professing Christian may not sometimes, in consequence of his decision, be subjected to severe trials, or on the other hand that by a timid and temporizing course he may not sometimes avoid trials. But I mean that, on the whole, the decided Christian will be far less embarrassed in the discharge of duty than any other. Would Nebuchadnezzar, do you imagine, after having witnessed the decision of these men and the consequences of it, have been likely to repeat the experiment which he made, or to have tried any other means to induce them to worship his idol? Would he not rather have abandoned it as a hopeless case, 
satisfied that they were determined to adhere to the worship of Jehovah, and that Jehovah would assuredly preserve and bless them in it. And the same effect, substantially, is produced upon the world by every instance of decision in Christians. Let the Christian, when the world spreads its temptations before him, show himself determined and able to resist them. Let him, when solicited by his former careless associates to the haunts of sin, exhibit a firmness of opposition, which their cavils or sneers or flatteries do not shake. And let him repeat this in a few instances, and he will probably have occasion to repeat it no more, for they will become satisfied that their efforts are unavailing and will think it best to retire from the conflict. Let him, on the other hand, when he is tempted, show himself half inclined to yield. Let him manifest a disposition to conform to the world so far as he possibly can without sacrificing his Christian character. Let him look with some degree of indulgence on forbidden pleasures, and often be found amid scenes of thoughtlessness, and you may rest assured that that individual will be perpetually and painfully embarrassed. Every instance in which he yields to the claims of the careless and wicked will encourage them to renew their demands upon him, and it will be strange if they suffer him to rest before he has practically disavowed his regard for religion and sunk the character of the Christian and that of the worldling. Number three, a decided course is the most useful course. This is evident from the fact that many of those deeds which are followed by the most important and permanent benefit to the world could never be performed without Christian decision. Witness, for instance, the conduct of Moses in turning his back upon the rich temporal advantages which were held out to him as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Nothing but genuine decision could have influenced him to the course which he adopted, and yet what immense benefits were derived from his conduct under God to the Jewish nation and to the world. And what was true of the consequences of his conduct has been true in a greater or less degree in thousands of other cases. And besides this, the decided Christian by his general character exerts an influence of the most salutary kind which is peculiar to himself. All who see him take knowledge of him that he has been with Jesus and wherever he goes, he leaves an impression in favor of the religion he professes. The undecided professor, on the other hand, is continually making the cause of religion bleed. He may indeed, when he is in the company of Christians alone, appear like a Christian. You might even think him zealous and active. But in the presence of the world, he seems as indifferent to religion as the world itself. If any severe cross is to be taken up in the path of duty... He has no resolution for such a service. What the influence of such an example and such a character must be, no one can be at a loss to determine. Let the appeal be to facts. Look around you and tell me whether you really believe the professing Christian exerts the happiest influence, whose life is a perpetual scene of unwarrantable compliances with the maxims of the world, who dares never to take a decided stand on the side of duty, when duty happens to be the unpopular side, or whether it is not he who is steadfast and immovable, who fearlessly discharges the most difficult duties, and resolutely resists the most powerful temptations. I know there is not one of you whose conscience must not return an answer in favor of the decided Christian. Number four. A decided course is the most honorable course, that it actually is so in the view of God in all holy beings none can question. For the decided Christian faithfully conforms his conduct to God's will, 
and makes it his unceasing object to promote God's glory and to advance the interests of his spiritual kingdom. But I venture to go farther and assert that he is the most honorable man in the view of the world, and even of the most wicked part of it. For wicked men, let it be remembered, have eyes and ears, have reason and conscience, and they know what is right and what is wrong as well as others. I do not say, indeed, that their hearts will relish a decision of the devoted Christian, but I do say that their consciences will approve it. I do say that they will have a secret reverence for such a character, corresponding to the contempt which they feel towards its opposite. And there are a thousand cases in which they have an opportunity to manifest, and actually do manifest their preference in their conduct. If, for instance, a wicked man has any important trust which he wishes to put in charge with one of his fellow men, to be executed after he is dead, rely on it he will be far more likely to leave it with the man of unyielding religious principles than any other person, thus proving that the contempt with which he might sometimes have appeared to regard such a character was mere affectation, and that he actually regarded it with respect and veneration. Number five. A decided course is a most happy course. It is so because it is the only course that keeps a man on good terms with his own conscience. And without an approving conscience, the universe could not make him happy. Just in proportion as a profession Christian is undecided, he loses the approbation of his conscience, and of course in the same degree forfeits his enjoyment. Moreover, it is a source of rich enjoyment to the decided Christian, to see the benefits which result from his decision, the influence which he thereby exerts in building up the cause of Christ. It is a delightful reflection that in all his efforts God is glorified in some way or other, and that he may hope to be instrumental in saving souls from death and hiding a multitude of sins. By maintaining a decided character, the Christian also lays a foundation for a peaceful and happy death. He may expect indeed that large measures of peace and comfort will be granted him from above during his life, but especially has he a right to expect that this will be realized when flesh and heart are failing. Not that anything which he has done will be regarded as constituting the least part of the ground of his acceptance. Still, he will look back, and he will have a right to look back upon his life with gratitude to that God who has enabled him to stand firm amidst all the temptations to which he has been exposed, and with joy unspeakable that his imperfect services may be crowned with the benedictions of his Lord. It was especially this trait of character upon which we have been meditating that put such rapture and triumph into the dying expressions of the Apostle. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day. And as the decided course is the most happy in its progress, it is also the most happy in its result. For though the rewards of eternity will be of rich grace, yet they will be proportioned to the zeal and fidelity which have here marked the Christian's labors, while the timid and worldly-minded Christian, if the expression be not a solecism, will be saved so as by fire, the truly decided one will have an abundant entrance ministered to him into the kingdom of our Father. Nay, he will shine as the brightness of the firmament and as the stars forever and ever. Enough, I trust, has been said, my young friends, to convince you the decision in your religious course is most intimately connected with your usefulness, your comfort, and your character. Let me now conclude with a single remark. 
It is that if you do not become decided now, there is little probability that you ever will. Decided indeed you must be in a degree, or you cannot be a Christian. But I speak here of that degree of decision which, according to the common understanding of the term, shall entitle you to be considered a decided Christian. And I repeat, unless you acquire this character now at the commencement of your Christian course, there is little reason to believe that you will ever acquire it, because every step you take in the way of conformity to the world will multiply the temptations around you and will diminish your strength of resistance. On the other hand, if you begin right and fix upon an elevated standard of duty, though it may cost you a severe effort at first, your course will soon become easy and delightful. There then, my young friends, to do your duty at all times and at all hazards. Never be afraid to stand alone in a good cause. If the world spreads before you its brilliant and tempting scenes, remember that you are not of the world, and that you are to have no communion with its sinful pleasures. When difficulties and trial throng the path of duty, remember that you have professed to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus, and that the motto of a disciple is self-denial. In short, wherever you are, whether among the friends or the enemies of Christ, act consistently with your profession and your hopes. In this way you will secure to yourself the full amount of blessing which religion is fitted to impart. In this way you will travel onward to the grace, cheered by the tokens of God's gracious presence, and beyond it you will walk over the plains of immortality in the full radiance of the Redeemer throne. Lecture 15. Growth in Grace. 2 Peter 3, verse 18, Grow in Grace. It is an error of common with young Christians that when the first joys of a renovated state have passed away, the current of their affection sets back strongly towards the world. Judging from their appearance in many instances, we should say that they give little promise of being faithful soldiers of the cross. That instead of guarding more closely against their spiritual enemies and girding themselves more thoroughly for a conflict, they were casting from them the armor which they were actually furnished, and dismissing the sentinels already stationed at the door of their hearts. They would seem to be acting upon the conviction that the course of exercises through which they had passed constituted certain evidences of regeneration, and that regeneration not only begins but completes their preparation for heaven. Our text is adapted, my young friends, to guard you against this mistaken view of the religious life. It clearly implies that regeneration is but the beginning of religion in the heart, and of course leaves the subject of it but partially sanctified, that the Christian life is a life of constant improvement, and that this improvement is intimately connected with our own exertions. It is the design of this discourse to illustrate the nature, the means, the importance of growth and grace. Number one, what is it to grow in grace? The word grace is used in the New Testament with various shades of meaning. But in the text it evidently denotes practical piety or the religion of the heart and life. To grow in grace, therefore, is in general to make progress in religion. More particularly, number one, it is implied in this duty that you grow not merely in the means of religion, but in religion itself. The use of means always supposes that there is an end to be attained. This holds true in respect to religion as well as anything else. But it would seem that this connection between the means and the end is by many professing Christians in a great measure overlooked, and that for the actual attainment of grace they substitute the means by which it is to be attained, 
and the regularity of their attendance on religious services, they seem practically to forget the purpose for which these services were designed, so that instead of ministering to the growth of religion, they serve only to cherish a spirit of self-righteousness. Think not that I would discourage the most diligent use of means. I would only put you on your guard against defeating the purpose for which they are designed by an improper use of them. Let them be used and used daily, but let it be with reference to the attainment of an end, the promotion of religion in the heart and life. And so long as this purpose is not answered, remember that they have not exerted their proper influence. When the effect of them is to increase your love to God and man, to quicken your faith, to deepen your humility, and to cause you to abound more and more in every Christian virtue, then, and only then, is their legitimate purpose accomplished. Growth in grace, then, you perceive, involves not only a diligent use of the means of grace, but also the attainment of the end for which these means were designed. While the end is not, at least in the ordinary course of providence, to be attained without the means, the means are of no importance except from their connection with the end. He who grows in grace in the use of the one attains the other. Number two. The duty which we are contemplating implies that you grow not in some particular parts of religion only, but in every part. The Christian character, though made up of a variety of graces and virtues, is well-proportioned and beautiful whole. But as there is a strong disposition to separate the means and the end in the religious life, there is a similar propensity often manifested to deform the Christian character by neglecting to cultivate some of the traits of which it is composed. Hence we often see professed Christians who in some respects seem to be closely conformed to the gospel standard, who yet in others exhibit so little of the Spirit of Christ as to occasion distressing doubts whether they are really His disciples. Now if you would comply with the duty enjoined in the text, you must guard against this evil. You need not indeed fear that you shall superabound in any of the virtues of the gospel, but take heed that there be none in which you are deficient. Let your standard of piety be as elevated as it may, but let your Christian character rise in just and beautiful proportions. Number three, the duty enjoined in the text, moreover, implies that you should grow in religion, not at particular times only, but at all times. There is, I fear, an impression too common among young Christians that the religious character is to be formed chiefly from the influence of great occasions. When, for instance, they are visited by severe affliction, they feel that it is a time for diligent cultivating religion. But let the rod of God be withdrawn, and they too commonly relapse into a state of comparative indolence. Or let there be a revival of religion in their immediate neighborhood, and you will see them coming forth to the work in a spirit of humility and self-denial. But let carelessness resume its dominion over the surrounding multitude, and they too, in many instances, will be seen settled down to a point of freezing indifference. They doubt not that it is the duty of Christians to make progress in religion, but they seem to imagine that by extraordinary diligence at one time they may atone for some degree of negligence at another. Now we do not deny that there are occasions in the Christian's life and among those to which we have referred which are peculiarly favorable to his improvement and for which he ought diligently to watch. But the notion against which we protest is that there is any period in which he may fold his hands in indolence. While you are to improve with special care those seasons which furnish peculiar advantages for the cultivation of piety, remember that religion is to be the work of every day, 
that in seasons of prosperity as well as adversity, in seasons of coldness as well as revival, in every condition in which you may be placed, you are bound to grow in grace. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.